Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale December 15, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Ooh, Tucker. I want your live reaction to this bad boy that I found in my garage. <laughs> oh, my God. It is. It's so perfect. It's perfect timing. It was a holiday gift a couple years back from Gentle Giant. It is a Yoda holiday edition on Star Wars Empire Strikes Back giant card. He's like eight inches tall and he's wearing a Santa suit. <laughs> oh, God, that rules. And it's he's got a little knapsack full of toys. But we're super into the holiday spirit right now. We are going to the old JCPenney to get our holiday photos taken. Hell yeah. And uh, if everybody who listens is good, I will post a photo on my <laughs> social to share with everyone in the coming days by the time this is up, oh, hopefully. Man, I love it. All right, everybody, be good. Be good so we can see this thing. Yeah. You're nursing a little cold, but everything else good? Yeah, yeah. You know, everything's just fine. I wish I had the garage space to have untold treasures of Star Wars X Christmas delights. <laughs> yeah, trust me. It's not the best thing to have all yeah. this stuff just like lingering around and, and, and gathering dust. Um, but hey, it's all good. I'm very appreciative that I have this stuff. I'm very appreciative of comics, Marvel yeah. comics, that is, because this is Marvel's Pull List, the show where we tell you all about the brand new Marvel comics on sale this week. We're going to give out three picks of the week, as well as a bunch of awards for new comics on sale. There's a whole bunch of comics this week. And then we're going to tell you about what new Infinity comics are hitting Marvel Unlimited, along with the other books hitting MU, uh, the collections on sale. And then to top it all off, we also have a reading club. What's our reading club this week? This week, we're chatting with writer of Reptile and contributor to Marvel's Voices Comunidades, Terry Bloss. Terry is the best. So excited to chat with him. And we are discussing Champions Outlawed. That's Champions from 2020, launched by writer Evel Ewing and artist Simone DeMeo. Really, really fun series that explores a lot of very fascinating stuff. And I think stuff that's especially relevant to the kind of writing that Terry has done so far at the House of Ideas. So we're going to dig into it all with him. Sweet. That's a little bit later, but first up, we have to give you our picks of the week. These are the ones that just tickled our fancies the most. And boy, oh boy, were my fancies tickled by Hulk number two. This issue is by Donnie Cates and Ryan Otley. They just credit themselves as such um, with Donnie on the, the writing and Ryan on the art. But together, they're doing the entire kit and caboodle with Cliff Rathburn on inks, Frank Martin on colors, and VC's Corey Pettit on letters. And this opens up with this shot of this like motley space crew, these new character designs. I was like, oh, who are these people? It's this old man with a great mustache and cool boots. And there's this lady with like these like cutoff shorts, but she's got demon wings and floaty hands and feet and other characters. And the guy's like, stop, you have entered the arterial dimensional between space, a forbidden zone for mortals. On behalf of the alternate universe timeline hazard operations response and intervention team, you and then they get murdered. <laughs> it is wild. Then you flip and the book shows you its hand right there. There's wild things happening across every single page, every single spread. And there's a lot of double page spreads in this book. I think one of the things that I love about this is it feels like Ryan Otley is unleashed. 
there's just no limits to what he's drawing. You can tell Donnie is having a blast and just probably just saying, here's this wild idea. What do you think? And Ryan's like, yes, but how about we do it like this and I make it even wilder? There's a whole section of giant classic Marvel monsters fighting the Hulk. Then you get to Hulk versus a giant-sized Wolverine. I don't want to give away anything in this, but it's some of the goriest, wildest superhero stuff we are doing right now. I'm looking at a page where Hulk has a sharp instrument and he's doing some very nasty things with it. Sort of the premise of this Hulk book, if you missed it, the first issue is that Bruce Banner has kind of like retreated into the body of the Hulk and he's piloting Hulk like Spaceship Hulk. And so he's going around and and using the Hulk's anger to power this spaceship. There's a lot more that they get into in the books and the missions and where they're going and all that stuff is starting to unfold, especially with a, a big revelation in this issue. But it just allows them to do absolutely bananas stuff. It feels very much like its own thing, separate from every other book we've had featuring the Hulk, but still feels just like a Hulk book, which I think is a great testament to these creators and to what they're trying to do here. This is the the issue that like said, oh yeah, you love this book now. The end, keep going. Yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like that might establish something of a theme in this week's books, just in terms of it feels like this is a great week for artists showing off the best they can be. And I think a perfect, perfect, perfect example, and I know you'll agree with me on this one, Ryan, is Defenders number four. The artist I'm talking about is Javier Rodriguez. He is credited here as a storyteller right alongside Al Ewing. Letters in this are by VCs Joe Caramagna and some really interesting stuff from Joe as well in this issue. Essentially, we're getting a tour of the different realities of the Marvel Universe here. We exist in the eighth cosmos, but in this series, we've traveled to the seventh, the sixth, and then to the fifth. And now we are journeying further and further. I really struggle for words when it comes to Javier's art. Just that thing, when you open up a page, if I handed you all of this week's 15 or so books and you just opened this, you would say, oh, there's that's Javier Rodriguez. It's one of those artists that you instantly know who it is, and he just never fails to outdo himself. This issue, I think in particular, starts to unravel not just the reality of the cosmos that these characters are existing in, but in a much, much more meta way, the reality of the way we're sort of reading this book. If you open up page one, you'll notice that there are one or two little details in the corners that look a little bit curious, but you'll see as you unfold this story what exactly is going on. And just when you think you've reached sort of the ultimate level that they're going to, they continue to outdo themselves even within this story. Somehow it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that is reflected, like I started here, in the art. The art style sort of changes as you go. The color palette changes as you go. It's a gorgeous book. Literally, if you haven't been reading it, pick it up. Read the summary before the credits page and then just dive in because it's a visual feast. Just absolutely gorgeous. It's cool stuff. Also cool stuff is our third pick of the week, Wastelanders Wolverine number one. 
It's written by Stephen S. DeKnight. You may know him from the first season of Marvel's Daredevil or from, he was a writer on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He worked on Spartacus. He worked on Pacific Rim Uprising, a whole bunch of stuff. It's got art by Ibrahim Mustafa, colors by Niraj Manan, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. You know, we have the the fiction podcast right now, the Marvel's Wastelanders shows. We have these comics. They're not in the same universe, but they're very similar stylistically telling about versions of kind of the same universe. This is the Old Man Logan universe, and this is more closely hewn to that original story. There's been a lot of stories in that. I think this ties in most closely to the end of the original Mark Miller and Steve McNiven story, picking up where that left off. And you've got Logan riding a horse with little baby Bruce, the green Hulk child with him going through it, recounts some of the old man Logan stuff. We get some Ghost Riders action in here and we get a showdown with a big, big bad guy. But it's funny. It is gruesome. One of the main reasons I picked this book, there's a panel middle of the book of tiny baby little Bruce, green, munching on a severed arm. The sound effects in the panel are nom, 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 nom. It's so funny and ridiculous. And then Logan is like, we do not eat people. Spit it out. The violence in here is intense, but it feels really fitting for this universe. The emotional moments, and I'm trying not to spoil things, but there's some really great emotional moments throughout all this particularly when it comes to Logan and the little kid and what Logan in this universe has lost. And so it also has some of my favorite lines and it feels like it would be fitting in a Western movie. There's a bit in here where Logan says, you ain't going to do nothing but suck dirt. And after I'm done shoveling it, I'm going to plant a tree over that big, ugly head of yours. And it's going to send roots into your skull slow and painful. Then one day, years from now, I'm going to come back through here and sit under the shade of that tree with my son by my side. I was like, (laughs) hell yeah. Absolutely loved it. I thought this crushed, 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 crushed it. All right. That's what we have for our picks this week. Now we're diving into all the new Marvel mags coming your way this December 15th. For each of these fresh floppies, we'll be handing out and award in this week because we talked about it at the beginning and I just thought, you know what? It feels right. It's the Be Good Award and we're going to give it out to, to things that are being good. And you know what's being good? Amazing Spider-Man right now is being real good. I am super excited because who is taking a turn at the wheel of Amazing Spider-Man number 81 this week? It is Saladin Ahmed, one of the members of the Beyond Board. It just feels like a classic ASM story. You have the heart, the romance, the adventure, the monster, the day that needs saving, all of that. You know, you're flying around in Ben Riley's shoes all the way. Look, I've said it a million times. I'll keep saying it until it's not true, which I would wager is never. So I will say this forever then. Um, I'm just going nuts over ASM right now. Yeah. All right, we've got Demon Days Rising Storm number one. This is part three of the Yoshida Saga by Peach Momoko. I love this interpretation of the Marvel Universe that takes characters, takes concepts, takes ideas from Japanese mythology with the Marvel superheroes and under Peach's pencil and paint and inks and and all of her amazing art and storytelling gives it this completely new, fresh, and different take. If you've not been reading these Demon Days books, give yourself a treat. Go check them out. There's something special. Yeah. 
man, the art this week is just nuts. And next up, we're going from strength to strength, from Peach Bumoko to Asadra Beach. Upon recording, it was recently announced that Kieran Gillen is going to be launching a new X-Men title, Immortal X-Men. That just really got me thinking about Kieran Gillen and Marvel Comics, and really this specific era of Kieran at Marvel. The next book this week, uh, if I haven't mentioned, is Eternals number eight. And it got me thinking about him as a storyteller and Eternals as a series and what we've gotten from it so far. If you said, okay, Thanos is going to be playing a really big part in this Eternal series, you might expect a couple of certain things. And certainly this is a definitive Thanos, and it's a Thanos that's very familiar to us, but it still somehow feels like Kieran is doing some redefining work on this character in such a wonderful way because at the center of it, it really has this wonderful palace intrigue feel to it, it has this grand, huge scale feel to it, but it's also super personal in very specific and wonderful ways. So this is me raising a glass to Kieran Gillen and long may this era of Kieran Marvel stories continue. And when it comes to Eternals and Eternals number eight, right alongside that is Asad. Yeah. You mentioned Immortal X-Men that Kieran will be writing. You know, the most exciting thing for me about that is mm. Kieran writing Mr. Sinister on the regular. <laughs> All right, we've got Excalibur number 26 out this week. There was another piece of news about the Knights of X coming soon. And this issue is really the sort of like jumping point for us to get to the Knights of X. It's got a whole host of things going on in mostly terrible ways for Excalibur, for the mutants of Krakoa across other world in the UK. They just keep getting their heads kicked in in various ways over here. But I think I will give my Be Good Award to the line that's in here of talking about Betsy Braddock, aka Captain Britain. Just she's fighting for a world that hates and fears her which is a very important thing. It's obviously, you know, crucial to what the X-Men are, but it really means a lot to what this character is going to go into over the next bit of business. Next up, we have Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land, number four. And just when I thought that we couldn't dive deeper into the sort of eco-bio-horror realm that writer Zach Thompson has established here, and that has been so beautifully put on the page by, in this case, Alvaro Lopez and Lalit Kumar Sharma. We go even further. The story that we're getting here is about family. It's about fathers and sons. It's about responsibility. It's obviously deeply entwined with everything that the Savage Land brings. And this is a, another, I think, not just page turner, but definite turning point in the story that's being told so far. Hell yeah. All right. We've got Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 33 this week. There's some really great variant covers, I will tell you that. But this issue is mostly a rad team up between Miles, aka Spider-Man, and his last remaining clone, who he's become friends with and he's trying to take care of, aka Shift. This big hulking clone of his that can only say glurp. It's rad. It's just rad to see Miles sort of like another extension of him being almost a big brother is trying to protect shift and teach him and work with him. It's rad to see. I will give my be good award to the bonus two page story that's in here by Saladin Ahmed and Gustavo Duarte because it's real cute. And it's just a really sweet little 
shift focused story. It's like you get a great comic and then you get a little bit of dessert comic on top of that. Next up, we have Savage Avengers number 27. This issue is called Into the Past, and it's such a a wonderfully fantastic, gruesome, gory, mystical story that's going on here. It is so wonderful. It's so big, so weird, so perfect. And as we speed towards what's being called a coda final issue, it has just been a wild ride that really defies explanation, defies definition. So my Be Good Award goes to the one and only Jerry Duggan, who we know does some of the best solo hero comics of recent decades. And then when you look at this, you go, here's a submission that just says Jerry Duggan can write some of the best team books you will ever read straight up. And that's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. All right, we've got one Star Wars issue this week. It's Star Wars, The High Republic, number 12. And gosh, we've been a year of of High Republic stories and getting into all these characters. I will give my Be Good Award to Keeve Trennis, who's been going through a lot, but in a a book that's kind of an ensemble book, but also she's a, a neat character to be at the focal point of all the stuff that's going on as sort of working her way up to Jedi Master status and then going through some really wild stuff alongside the rest of the Jedi as they have to deal with the Nile. So yeah, she gets my Be Good Award. Yes, next up we have Strange Academy number 14. I will right off the bat give my Be Good Award to Doyle Dormammu, who really goes through it in this issue. But what I think this issue made me realize something that was obvious the whole time. I just hadn't, hadn't quite put my finger on. This might be the coziest. It's definitely in top three, top five coziest Marvel comics out there. And for that reason alone, I love to read it. You're at the school. You're doing magic stuff. You're in the dorm. You're going into these like dark little corners and weird, strange places. And then, of course, you have the huge wild monsters and and mystical stuff that has brought all these kids to Strange Academy to begin with. But that is a factor that I have only recently put together. And when I was reading it, it like made me savor every single page more and more and more. Just delightful. We've got The Thing number two out this week. I can't help but once again, shout to the rafters for the glory that is Tom Riley in here on art alongside Jordi Belair on colors. The two of them are dynamite. You get the weight of Benjamin Grimm from his punching to his, you know, when he's been knocked the hell down to his sadness, to sort of his reservations about who he's working alongside and what he's doing. This is a story set some years back, so it doesn't specifically tie into the Fantastic Four comics right now. So it's pretty evergreen. You could just pick this up if you like Ben Grimm, aka The Thing. Um, But it does have something cool. I will give my Be Good Award to Tom Riley and specifically to Tom's depiction of New Manhattan. We have a couple of these in Marvel Comics, these versions of Marvel's like secret underground New York City. We saw it in Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. We've seen it in some X-Men stuff, obviously, with the Morlocks. We've seen it across a number of different books. So I love that kind of stuff. And um, here, it just looks so cool classic, but also modern. It's great. Yes. And wrapping it up this week, I have X-Force number 26. We have surfing, sharks, and babies. 
I guess I could also throw submarines in there. But our adventures on the high seas continue in X-Force, led by Wolverine. Kid Omega plays a crucial part in this as well. But there is such a perfect like combination of fun, like embracing that classic 1980s style X-Men campiness to this story when it comes to the surfing, when it comes to Wolverine hanging 10 and stuff like that. (laughs) But it doesn't also come without this very extremely Ben Percy underlying feeling of like, there's just something sick at the center of it. You can't quite put your finger on it. You immediately dive into the action, but it unravels before you. X-Force is just a book that I've loved every single issue of. And I think it just holds such a specific place on its own in the Marvel Universe. And then, of course, just in terms of like the range of books being published, it always, always holds its own in its very, very own way. So my Be Good Award goes to Ben Percy. And in in this issue, Robert Gill, who I think is doing a great job now that uh, Joshua Kassara is off working on the next iteration of, of Wolverine stories. So shout out to the entire creative team here. I can't wait for new Kassara comics. I feel like uh a madman who needs his his Kassara fix. Soon. When do we get it? We get it on January 19th, 2022. Joshua Kassara, Benjamin Percy, X Lives of Wolverine, number one. Can't wait. A little bit late for a birthday present for me, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Oh, yeah. All right. Over on Marvel Unlimited, we've got some new Infinity Comics hitting this week. We've got X-Men Unlimited, Infinity Comic number 14, which is the next chapter in the Fabian Nicieza, Matt Horak, Deadpool Juggernaut team up, which, come on, I love that. We've got the Mighty Marvel Holiday Special, Happy Holidays, Mr. Howlett, Infinity Comic, written by ya boy Ryan North. Also, Nathan Stockman on art, colors by Chris O'Halloran. Man. That's so good. And then the third issue of the Spider-Bot Infinity Comic by my pal and yours, Jordan Bloom. What a week for Infinity Comics. And even on top of that, on MU, we're getting a whole bunch of books added to the service. The first issue of the current Kazar book. We've got Deadpool Black, White, and Blood, number two. And the second issue of Defenders, which, look, we've been talking about it. Get on the Defenders train, everybody. Chew, chew. Choo-choo, indeed. Now wrapping it up with new releases this week in the collections section, a couple amidst some great stuff pop out to me, including Reign of X, Volume 7. Obviously, Destiny of X is already on the horizon. Speaking of trains, that train don't stop. And then we also have Thor by Donny Cates, Volume 3, Revelations. That's a book and a series that I think is going to grow greater and greater in importance and stature in the weeks and months to come. So watch this space and uh, tune in with that collection of uh, Revelations. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. I like that tease. Real good, Tuck. All right. It is time for our reading club. And we've got Terry Bloss on the show this week. We mentioned talking about Champions Outlawed. Also, I believe Terry has a story in the Marvel's Voices Communitatis book that just came out last week. So this would be a great time to hear from Terry about uh, his work on uh, Reptile, his perspective on Champions, and then pick up some new stuff from him in Communitatis. So uh, without further ado, let's get into the chat. Tucker, get ready 
for some fun because we have a great guest this week here on Marvel's Pull List. We have Terry Bloss. We're going to be talking about Reptile. We're going to be talking about our reading club pick, which is Champions. Terry, welcome aboard. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for having me. Terry, first of all, where are you coming to us from? I live right outside of Portland. I've been here for about 16 years. Wow. There's a strong Portland contingency of comics, folks. Shout out your window and say hi to Kelly Thompson for us. Hello, Kelly. <laughs> I think it's just conducive to like, you know, when it rains like seven months of the year, what else are you going to do but <laughs> sit inside and read, write, and draw comics, right? <laughs> I love it. So that's where you are now. But going back to where you grew up, I'm curious to hear about where that was, what that was like, and then maybe what your local comic shop was like if you were visiting it then, if you were reading comics at a young age, or if you were just at home picking up nerdy stuff, what that was all like. Yeah, I grew up mostly in Boise, Idaho. I was born on a military base in Fort Ord, California, but we moved to Idaho real quick after that. And um, well, when I turned 16, I got a, my first job at a movie theater and a comic book store opened up right next door to it. So on my breaks, <laughs> that's what I would go do. I believe it was called One Million Comics. But that's where I bought all of my, you know, X-Men, all of my Spider-Man, all that stuff that I got really into because I am one of those 90s kids whose brain exploded because of the Fox animated series. But yeah, I grew up mostly in Idaho and consumed a lot of comics there. But when I was 16, my dad retired from the military and we moved to Mexico to a place called Ixtapa Zihuatanejo. And I lived there for a while, came back to the States to finish high school, moved to New York, I was a Mormon missionary, which is why I was there. Wow, <laughs> um, yeah. But after New York, I moved to LA and I lived there for four years in my early 20s. Wasn't for me. It was, I think, I think Los Angeles is great. I love visiting there now. And whenever I go, it's, you know, I feel like surrounded by mi gente and, you know, like great food and whatever. But when you're in your early 20s, I think you're searching for acceptance from a lot of outside sources and when I was like, cool, it's okay to be gay here. It's like, oh, no, it's not. Not unless you're like, <laughs> you look like a model. <laughs> so I had a friend who was working in comics here in Portland. And she was like, you should just move to Portland. And so I did. And the week that I moved to Portland, I, in that one week, I got into art school. I found an apartment and I got a job. And so I was like, all right, I guess my life is starting. So I got an illustration degree from PNCA, which is Pacific Northwest College of Art, and started working in comics not too long after that. And about three and a half, four years into drawing covers and some interior stuff, I decided to switch more into writing. And I feel like that's when things started to really pick up with my career. So I've been in Portland now for, I think, like 16, 17 years. Amazing. You know, when you're moving around, you're seeing all these things, how much does that affect your absorption of comics, your absorption of the, the pop culture that you love? Because just uprooting seems like that that takes so much energy, so much time, so much mind space. Yeah. You know, moving to Ixtapa when I was 16, there wasn't a comic book store there. It was like a tourist town. I had one friend who had some comics. And so we kind of shared, you know, with each other what we had. But New York, you know, when you're a Mormon missionary, you're not allowed to read anything but the Bible or the Book of Mormon. You're not allowed to listen to music, watch TV you know, any of that stuff. So for two years, I could draw in my sketchbook. So that's about all I was able to do. But Los Angeles, I went to every comic shop I could find there. <laughs> and then, you know, really started collecting again and reading a lot again. And then here in Portland, there's a bunch of great shops. I love Cosmic Monkey here in Portland. And then because I live just like 20 minutes south of Portland, 
I'm not too far from Milwaukee, which is where Dark Horse is located. And so they have a shop there too that I frequent. But yeah, it, it affects you, I think, in different ways when you either have great access to or no access to comics. I think that time in New York, all I could do to entertain myself was like daydream and create my own stories and draw them in my sketchbook. So maybe that influenced and helped me in some way, but I think I would have preferred to have comics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that's so fascinating to hear, Terry. Um, from the external then going into the internal, what did you find to be your influences? Whether that was at this point in your life, post X-Men animated series, post like knowing that that was a thing for you, that you found inspiring, that you found moving. Comics-wise, my first inspiration, of course, was like the Jim Lee era of comics in the 90s of X-Men and whatnot. But because I kept collecting X-Men, I was exposed to like Joe Moderera, <laughs> you know, like that kind of crazy, awesome era of, of X-Men. And then I was also the right age for the cliffhanger imprint, which was like a lot of stuff done by like Umberto Ramos. Those were some pretty huge influences on me art-wise. I also love, and most of my work tends to lean towards like young adult stuff and stuff about teenagers. It's also why, you know, like really love champions. And so I devoured Young Avengers. Like Generation X was it for me. I love that title in the 90s. I thought it was really cool. I wrote about this for the Marvel Voices essay on the website, but it was the first time I saw a Mexican superhero in like a Marvel comic book. Not to say it was the first one, but it was just the first one I saw with Angelo Espinosa and Skin. So those were huge inspirations to me. But also, as a kid, I was hugely influenced by like Disney movies because it was one of the only things that, you know, I was allowed to watch <laughs> um, in a strict religious household. So a lot of Disney cartoons, animation, stuff like that. And then when I was 16, I super imprinted hard on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Stories, I think, about, you know, young people feeling all the things that they're feeling and sort of becoming the people that they're going to be really resonate with me. I don't want to overanalyze it, but I think because queer kids are so concerned with things that they shouldn't have to be concerned with. And I feel like being a queer adult is sort of like, in a way, trying to recapture a lot of the things from your childhood that you didn't get to experience. So I think that stories about young people just like fully becoming who they want to be, which is sort of what I try to do with Reptile as well are what I really like to write. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about animation stuff. I wanted to ask about your work with like, you know, regular show, Amazing World of Gumball, Adventure Time, Rick and Morty. Yeah. Uh, how'd you get linked up with that? Because that, that's super fun to work on that kind of material. Yeah, and I loved all those shows too before I even got the chance to work on them. After college, I became a member of Helioscope Studio in Portland, which is, I believe, one of the largest collectives of independent comic book artists and writers in the country. And a good friend of mine, Natalie Norigat, she was working there and she had just done a cover for Adventure Time and she'd been working in comics for a bit. And for some reason, I don't know why I thought I could do this, but I was like, I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to draw an Adventure Time cover. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to just, you know, <laughs> make a professional cover, do it, have it look good. So I did. And then I asked Natalie, I was like, hey, I have this piece. I know they do a ton of variant covers for Adventure Time. Like, would you feel comfortable sending it to your editor and being like, hey, my friend did this. If you guys need another cover. And she was like, yeah, sure. So she did. And I got an email from the editor who was like, cool. Yeah, thanks. We'll use it for issue four. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I met that editor at a convention and told her, like, I love the, the stuff you guys make. I'm a huge fan of like Bravest Warriors. And I think that comic is a really good sister to the animated series. And she was like, cool. You want to do a cover? 
And that's just how it sort of, you know, I just kept seeking out covers from them and telling them like, I love doing that cover. You guys got anything else? And I think, you know, you get work when you ask for it. I think people don't want to ask, but that's how you get the work is just say, Hey, I'm free right now. If you guys have anything, let me know. And I think that's a great lesson to share with any of our listeners. Obviously, you have to be kind and be you know smart about it and, and do all kinds of the ways you approach people. You have to be thoughtful. But if you have that energy and that vibe to do something and you've got the talent and the skill, then go for it. Yeah, I think that I know I did those two comics that were you say Latino and you say Latinx that were just sort of explaining what those terms mean. And, and they were like these short educational comics. And then I got a lot of interviews after that. But half of those interviews were sites and podcasts and things that I sought out and just said, hey, I made these comics. I think they'd be a really good subject for your thing. And most people were like, yeah, sounds great. Let's do it. When do you want to do it? And a friend of mine was like, how are you getting so many of these like things? For-? And I was like, "Like, you have to seek those opportunities out and state that you want them. To continue down the, the Terry timeline, when it comes to Reptile, did that just emerge from that previous work that you'd been doing? And then you kind of started having conversations with Lauren and, and, and Jordan and the crew over here? Yeah, a little bit. I, <laughs> I had actually been like, for me, a huge part of my work and what's really important to me is Latinx and especially Mexican representation in media. You know, there are 50 plus million Latinx people in the United States. 30 million plus of those are Mexican or Mexican-American And still across the board, we're the largest ethnic minority group in the country, and we have the least amount of representation. It's like 2% in like books, movies, and whatever. And still, like when Latin women, or especially Mexican women, are portrayed on TV, it's still usually like a maid or like a sex object. (laughs) And I grew up in a house with three Latinas, so that's sort of been my mission to like show that, you know, we can be brave and smart and funny and flawed. And I had made a book called Hotel Dare through Boom. I pitch it as like, this is Star Trek and Harry Potter, but for like Mexicans, because all of our modern fantasy is very European in its visual language. So like Harry Potter and Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. I was like, just by having a fantasy that's Mexican, where the castles are like pyramids and the dragons like a feathered serpent, doesn't that automatically make it different? So I made that. It was like a family kind of fantasy epic adventure book. And I believe that Lauren had read that and thought, oh, maybe Terry could be a person who could write Reptile. And she emailed my agent asking if I would be interested. And for me, Marvel was like a dream because I had revered it so much. I thought that maybe when I was like 80 or 90, like they would come and maybe ask and knock on my door and, and sure, I'll do it, you know, like whatever. <laughs> but I didn't expect something like that. I had actually been researching Mexican superheroes that had popped up in Marvel. And one that I loved was Hummingbird. And then this opportunity came. So my first thought was, yes, of course. And my second thought was like, this character has been around in comics for like 10 years and I don't actually know who this character is. And I thought, no matter what his ethnicity, if this is a kid who can turn into dinosaurs, how is he not the most popular character for kids at Marvel? And I was like, this is an incredible opportunity, not only to help this character become known to kids, but to talk about like representation. You know, I asked... Lauren, I said, what's happening in the Marvel universe right now that you feel would affect him? And she mentioned Kamala's Law, which is a big part of the Champion series. So I read all of Champions and I thought, oh, wow, like this kid's experienced a lot of trauma. His parents went missing. He's been tortured. He's like almost died. And now he's not even allowed to use his powers. And when he does turn into a full dinosaur, he kind of hulks out like he can't control it. 
I thought this to me would say like, fine, I'm right now I'm done. Then I'm going to focus on my family. My grandpa's old. And that was sort of where the pitch started was like, cool. He's going to set superhero powers aside. He's going to be a 16 year old kid and play his video games and watch anime. And so he helps his grandpa move in with his aunt and her kids. Of course, things don't go the way he planned. So he's then forced to use his powers. But I thought this is a good opportunity for one of his cousins, maybe to be like, why do you have these amazing powers? You're Mexican. Why are you not a hero for us? How are we supposed to believe in a better world for people like us who get told to like go back to where we came from, even though we're like third generation Americans? If we don't have the model of a hero out there representing us and inspiring us, and that sort of came from some of his previous comics where he did have a conversation with White Tiger, where he was like, why do I have to be a Mexican hero? Why can't I just be a hero? And for me, that was like, well, until we have a Mexican hero who talks about being Mexican and how they are representative of that, then after that, we can just be like heroes. Fine. Great. So that's sort of what I wanted to do and sort of how it came about. And hopefully <laughs> I pulled it off. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, no, we've, we've been really enjoying the book on the show. Oh, I'm glad. Um, yeah. I want to make sure our listeners know uh, Lauren that we're talking about is Lauren Amaro on the editorial team. Also, just shouting out for if we have any listeners who are Mexican or Mexican-American or who want more, like want to see more of these characters, keep telling Marvel. What you were saying, Terry, is like, you got to put it out there. You got to go out there. You got to be part of that change. And I'm glad that you are writing this character and bringing life to this character. But there's others too. There's, you know, you mentioned Hummingbird. I love Locust from the first oh, volume. She's great. Oh my God. I love her. <laughs> Super like, cool. Designed by Humberto Ramos. So, like, yeah, with like this, like, nod to like the Chespirito, like the, you know, with his little hammer and the red bug guy. Oh my yeah. gosh. So cool. <laughs> and it's like, there's opportunity there. I feel like it it doesn't serve us to have great characters who, in this instance, are Mexican if we don't support those books and those stories. Like, I created three new characters for Reptile who are Mexican, but, you know, they could just easily fall into obscurity if that book isn't, you know, supported, if people don't talk about them. It's easy for them to sort of just fall away if we don't support them. Look at Ms. Marvel, how she's in the games and she's going to be in the MCU now. She's got her own show and, like, I never would have thought that, but... That comic did so well because people loved it and it was good and they supported it. Support good comics, everybody. I think that's like the perfect like modern contemporary example to touch on at this point in time, specifically with regard to Reptile and your work on Reptile. When it comes to Kamala Khan, it's a subject worthy of its own podcast, to be honest, about how the origin story of Kamala Khan is the modern amazing fantasy 15. It's the modern origin of Peter Parker. It's that good. I was curious when it comes to Reptile number one, and introducing this character with his own title to a broader range of readers. If you had those touchstones yourself, if you went back and looked at, okay, what are some really good number ones? What are some good origin stories? What's the most effective, concise way to do that kind of thing? Did you have those kind of books you were looking at? I did. I read three things. I read Miss Marvel. <laughs> I read, you know, the first comics that Miles Morales appeared in. And then I read the miniseries that was done for Nova. I wanted to be conscious of the fact that I felt like I needed to give him something that people could latch on to relate to, you know, there had been a lot of talk about how Peter Parker has the, you know, like the, with great power comes great responsibility thing. And that when Kamala was created, there was this idea of like, what do we give her that seems like, you know, her thing that fits within that. And it was the idea of like, when you hurt one person, you hurt the world. And when you save one person, you save the world. Like she can't save everybody, but 
if you start there with one person, like that one person is someone's whole world. Like that's something that you can do that's heroic. But because so much of Reptile is about representation, I wanted to have his cousin tell him something like, all you have to do is be yourself and be visible. Because by being yourself and being visible, you will inspire us to be better. You're already a hero. We just need to know that you're a hero. That was like so symbolic to me of like, we have great stories about Latinos and about Mexicans, but if we don't know about them, we're not watching them. We're not reading them. So to be more visible, I think was what I wanted to sort of include because I felt like some of those funny moments where he is a kid combined with some of those heroic ideals, I think was what I hope people would respond to. Definitely. All right, let's dive into the reading club. We talked a little bit about Kamala. Obviously, she's a part of Champions, but Terry, why did you choose this arc of Champions for the reading club? You know, I did just talk about Nova, Miles, <laughs> and Kamala, and they, to me, they're sort of like the three that lead this team. You know, they're usually in Champions. I also love it because it's a teen book. It was something, like I mentioned, that I read in preparation for Reptile so I could understand what was happening with Kamala's Law and what Cradle was and what that was all about. And also because a lot of the subject matter, I felt, touched me in a way that was reminiscent of real-life things that were happening out in the world. You know, Stanley said that Marvel functions because it should be a window to the world. And I don't want to get too heavy, (laughs) but because of, you know, in the past few years, a lot of the discussion that's happened with kids who have been, have been put in cages, (laughs) kids who like, especially also in Canada, where there's been a lot of discussion now about re-education centers that native kids had to go through. Those were the things that I felt this book was talking about with, you know, taking kids and putting them in exactly what they call them in champions, re-education centers. So that's sort of why I chose it. Um, Also, because it was just really entertaining to me. It was just a great comic. Mm -hmm. When it comes to writing about these matters, when it comes to speaking about representation, in your case, the Mexican-American experience, the queer experience, all of these things, do you feel the pressure of that? Do you feel the like Umberto Lopez sort of push to be like, Hey man, like, let me just create, you know, I don't, I don't want to necessarily carry this burden in in such a big way at such a crucial time for so many people. I'll say that I don't think I really feel that way when I'm writing. I maybe feel it a little bit when I'm creating characters, when I'm thinking about what I want the story to be, but I try not to think about it too much. Otherwise I think it will crush me. (laughs) So the thing that I just tell myself is I will never be able to bring the full spectrum of what it means to be Mexican or queer to the world, but I can bring a perspective of it. I'm not going to please everybody, but my experience being Mexican is very different from any other Mexican. And that to me means that there is a big power in the idea of more than one. So like within Reptile, Julian has the experience of being a queer, gay Mexican boy who's had to deal with machismo and like the idea of what it means to be a Mexican man. Umberto's never had to deal with that. He's Mexican, but he's never had to deal with like, oh, I never thought about being manly or, or whatever. So those are two different perspectives. You know, Ava has a perspective of, I'm a young Mexican woman and I'm learning magic to protect myself because I don't feel safe all the time. And that might not be something that Umberto's felt. 
So yeah, I don't try not to think about that too much. If you look at my body of work, you know, my first book is about a young plus size Mexican girl who wants to design clothes and is forced to go to fat camp instead and witnesses a murder. <laughs> so that's very different than say like a hotel dare, which is about a Mexican grandma who's really mean and you don't know why. And it's essentially because she's like, hotel dare is like, what if you found out your Mexican abuela was Dr. Who basically? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think that I can try to bring different perspectives depending on different stories, but I'm never, I, because I'm never going to be able to give the world everyone's perspective of what it is to be Mexican. It's not something I can worry about. Mm -hmm. It's such a great artistic expression of a you to the myth of a monolith in that way, where, you know, it's just saying like, I'm not out here writing an essay about that. I'm just proving it with these stories. I'm so glad you said that because with my, you say Latino comic, all I wanted to do was make a short educational comic about the terms Latino and Hispanic and how they aren't the same thing. And, you know, it's a six page, somewhat biographical comic about my experience. I didn't write a 20 page dissertation, you know, like on the subject, I'm just trying to distill a huge idea down to some digestible bits that hopefully would help people. And, you know, I got a lot of nice messages after that, but I also got a lot of like, you're a fake white Mexican. You don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. And I felt so strange that I had to educate other Mexicans on like, Mexican's not a race. Like, what do you, like, have you never seen a white Mexican? You've never watched a telenovela? <laughs> like, <laughs> Mexicans are native, white, black, mixed. Like, I would just send people like Article 30 of the Mexican, like I screen capped Article 30 of the Mexican Constitution that states if one of your parents is born in Mexico, they consider you Mexican. <laughs> so I was like, well, don't take it up with me. <laughs> take it up with, with Mexico. <laughs> like, you telling me that my experience, it, it was such an interesting idea to me because, you know, someone who tells me like, you're not Mexican. It's like, okay, I wasn't born in Mexico. I get that. But when I was closer to all of my mom's family, when I have visited and lived in more cities in Mexico than I have in the United States, who are you to tell me that my experience isn't valid? Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think about identity in terms of my own heritage and stuff a lot because we were talking about this before we started rolling like I didn't grow up with you know the Colombian side of my family I met my grandmother on that side once but I don't really speak Spanish very well and it's something I think about and I've talked to Angelique Rocher about it too it's like am I a fake Colombian American how do I feel better about that part of myself. The thing I told Angelique about this exact topic was I said, if someone tells you, or if you think or doubt that, you know, you are a quote unquote real or full Latinx person or Colombian or whatever, because you don't speak that language, all you have to do is tell someone, you know what? My ancestors didn't speak Spanish and they certainly weren't Catholic either. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that only happened because of Spain, you know? So to tell someone, oh, you're, you don't speak the language, you're not full, whatever. That language doesn't have anything to do with your ethnicity. Like, I mean, it has, it has something to do with it, but it's not the identifying factor, you know? Sure. Yes. But it's also like a connective tissue to the people around me and my community and, and the people like my heritage. Like there's a, there's a lot, it's a lot to unravel. I, I wanted to follow up uh, really briefly because you were talking about how much you plan. Yeah. 
So one of my huge influences as a kid was also Rumiko Takahashi. She made Inuyasha. She made my favorite Ranma one half. And I remember someone telling me, oh, she doesn't even pencil anymore. She just straight inks on the page. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> and, and I do comics the way I approach them as sort of like an architect, you know, like uh, I don't know many architects that can just go straight to picking up the wood and start, you know, hammering nails to make a house. They need a plan and a blueprint. Maybe someone who's made like several hundred houses, <laughs> like a legend, you know, can go do that. But I need some of that structure. For me, it allows for the structure of, okay, I'm setting up that this villain is, you know, he's going to have a secret, but he's also going to be, spoilers if you haven't read it yet, but he's going to be the son of the woman who created the amulet, which creates this animosity of like, why didn't she give it to me? You know, I'm her son. And then that was as far as I went. And then I realized, oh, both of these characters, Umberto, Reptil, and Megalith, are trying desperately to get back to their families, but for very different reasons. And I felt like that was an emotional component that didn't strike me until I was writing like issue two. You know, it wasn't in my outline, but then I was able to like inject some more into that. And the thing I love about comics is that you do a lot of notes and you do like a lettering pass. And when you see the issue lettered and you can do notes on it, you can go, oh, wait, can we add a line in here that says this? And like, can we tweak it so that this is a bit more? That's one of my favorite parts of the process. And I think I was able to allow for a bit more of an emotional connection in that part of the process with, you know, this villain character. We've got to dive back into Champions. Want to make sure we let everybody know we're sort of looking at the Outlawed overall arc, which includes Outlawed number one, as well as that first arc of Champions. Eve Ewing wrote Outlawed. We have art in here by Simone de Mieo, Bob Quinn, Kim Jacinto, and a whole bunch of other folks. Colors by Esprin Gudenjern and Federico Blee. Letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Rock solid team here. Uh, really, the Outlawed issue too. I hadn't read it since it came out, and it's it's a very vibrant, very exciting, very striking issue in that one. When you you as an both a writer and an artist, Terry, where does your brain go? You know, especially as you're looking at stories like this for planning and thinking about and researching the work of your own, do you focus more on the art? Do you focus more on the writing, the dialogue, the characterization, or is it just one big bucket of, of wonderful comics that you dive into? I think instinctually I go to art first, uh, just because that's what I've always done. I'm drawn to certain panels, certain artists, certain things as I'm reading the book. But now as I absorb it, I think the thing that I then go to second is usually on a book like this, how did this writer juggle <laughs> all these characters and give them all moments that help develop and strengthen these characters? That issue too is really great. And there's a small moment with the character Snowguard, Amka, who is Canadian, and she does liken what's happening to the kids as to what happened in Canada with re-education centers for Native children. And there's also like a human character in this issue named Lola, who's like at a protest. She talks about how like these laws that are supposedly about safety have been used as an excuse, she says, I think, to police uh, control and repress different communities. That hit me really hard. So it was so interesting to me how this character Lola is like minor character. She's in like a few panels, but even she got this like great sort of emotional thing. That tells you so much about who she is as a character. You know, I love, I've recently, after rereading the first like seven issues of this again, 
have fallen in love with Viv Vision, and she's going through a lot in this series. She's on a bus heading to Kansas. She's like, apparently she's like a Wizard of Oz fan. I love that scene so much, it's though. It's such where, a good scene. Oh, and like, especially at the end where the, the old woman, she's just like, you know, she knows who she is and she was protecting her. She was sweet. And she was giving her lessons like that might have been my favorite sequence of this arc. Yeah, it's, I believe that lady's name is Cora. Uh, she like fixes her electricity and then Cora offers her soup. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's such a touching scene where she's basically, she's like, no, I know, I know who you are. And she sh- doesn't she show her like photos of her in a bar where black people weren't you know allowed to be in at the time? Yep. Yeah, it's a really good scene. But yeah, I, that's why I really like this. When reading this and working on Reptile, with the outlawed arc specifically, it's so fascinating because you you can absolutely, I mean, we're talking about the Marvel Universe here. You you feel, you know, somewhere way in the back of your brain, even if it's subconscious, the echoes of Civil War and Superhuman Registration Act and what all that was about. But this is obviously about a younger generation of heroes, similar to, you know, where Umberto Lopez is in his life. I'm curious if there's something creatively or philosophically, whatever it might be, that you feel like younger heroes or a younger perspective allows you to do that. Like if you were writing a, just a regular adult character that you couldn't do as much. Yeah, I do. I, I think that, you know, a younger generation is usually at the forefront of like change, you know, it's usually sort of an older generation, not always, but an older generation that wants to stick with you know, what they know and what what's has worked for them. And so I think that the, the whole reason Champions started, I went back and reread some of the very first issues that included Kamala and Miles and Nova forming Champions. And it was because they didn't agree with the way that the adults and the Avengers were doing things. You know, like they, there was like some big battle that happened with this train and whatever. And Kamala was like, shouldn't we help this guy whose food truck was just destroyed by this battle that we and the vendors are like that's not our territory we don't do that she's like what i thought we're supposed to help people and so she really doesn't understand why a different generation doesn't see things the way she does and i think that allows for you know this young team to tackle situations and battles and things that we otherwise wouldn't see happening because the adults just don't deal with that or don't want to deal with that. I think like starting with issue five of uh, Champions Outlawed, it really starts to transition into when they find out that the Roxon or Roxon Corporation is behind a lot of these re-education centers. Um, there's a line, I think in issue six, where Kamala says, oh, they just took this battle to like the battleground of teenagers like the internet, you know, <laughs> they're trying to then influence what teenagers think and how we feel. And like, how do you fight that? You know, and then I love that the first five issues basically feel like part of the champions are on the run the whole time. And then the other, the rest of the champions are captured. And the ones that are on the run are trying to save them. That almost feels at the end, sort of like a heist with Viv and with Amadeus Cho And then once we get to issue six, it turns into like, oh, this is now a spy thing where we're going to infiltrate this company by posing as interns. (laughs) And issue six is where Luciano Vecchio comes in. And I love that because he gives Viv Vision an actual costume. (laughs) She's sort of had like a casual thing since then. Yeah, I, I really love this series because of a lot of the things that I think it tackles because it's about young people. 
there's also a great bit with older Cyclops coming to rescue and yeah. help out basically like another extension of his family, which I absolutely loved as well. Like that part that he has all the memories of his younger self, even though it's comic books and there was a young Cyclops and went back in time and all this other stuff. But like those bits and the part where he puts on his costume, his old uh, champion's costume is so cute. (laughs) That's So again, those are for me moments that made me fall in love even more with this series because, you know, like looking back, one of my favorite issues of X-Men was just an issue where Rogue and Gambit went on a date. You know, I remember that cover so well. And in this issue, when they're transported to like the, the boat, Right before that in Riri's lab, you see Sam holding like a fidget spinner. <laughs> if you look really close, he's just like, whatever. And then Riri is fangirling on the boat over meeting Storm. You know, a couple panels later, Bishop's making breakfast for all the kids. Like that stuff really, I think, is great because it's what would happen. And we don't usually see those kind of like small, fun, touching moments. I love that issue. I love those moments. Somehow, I don't know how, I don't know how e-viewing did and does it. I don't know how you do it, where you are able to capture that spirit and that feeling. And it simultaneously can be these absolutely thrilling stories, but with these sweet, incredibly human moments at the same time that just feel so real and so normal. And it just brings you right alongside those characters. The only thing I can think is to not see what you're writing as just one thing. You know, and I think, again, I hate to t- bring it up again, but what really influenced me that way was was my love of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because I was like, oh, wait a minute. Even in this title, this show is telling you that Buffy means comedy, vampire means horror, and Slayer means action. And you're going to get all of those in this show. So a lot of those moments in Reptile, I feel like I'm writing a comic, an adventure, superhero thing. But I was like, well, but I want a character that's funny. You know, to inject some of those moments. Julian, like can't help but comment on things. And I think when something's serious, if you undercut it with a little bit of humor, it kind of brings a little bit of a lightness to it. And it helps you feel like you're not just watching or reading one genre. Mm -hmm. And it helps you care more. Like it gets you more invested. You know, like those lighter moments make you care more about the heavier moments. And I think Reptile is like just such a perfect example of that. And listener, go out and experience it because it is great. Terry, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Terry. Thank you once more to Terry for joining us. Go read Terry's great work. Hopefully we'll see more and more and more of him, but we got a really great reptile series from Terry Bloss, as well as the story Just As Strange As You, starring Herman Aguilar and Eva Contero of the Strange Academy. That was Terry's entry in Marvel's Voices Comunidades number one, out recently alongside artist Julius Ota, colorist Eric Arseniego. It was a really, really sweet a few-page story in what was a great anthology. But thank you once more, Terry, for joining us here on The Pull List. All right, this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And I got an email from Brad this week because the title of the current Hulk series is called Smashtronaut, which is a great title. I wish somebody had thought of it first. And Brad said, you know what? He actually did think of it first. He's a huge Smash Mouth fan. And so he started a Smash Mouth fan club years and years ago called the Smashtronauts. 
So he's a little upset at Donny Cates about <laughs> usurping the name, but I think Donny is also a big Smash Mouth guy, so they're both <laughs> Smashtronauts. So look, everybody wins, right? <laughs> I'm Ryan. I'm Tucker. <laughs> this is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>